Welcome to Off The Fence, I'm James Fox and we also got the good man Alex Maskell sitting next to me. What's up everyone? We've been away for a while, we have but been. we're back. It's it, mostly been laziness. Yeah, a few other things, including going to the wrestling. Hell yeah, that was, that was fun as hell. Uh, we, we, shout out Riptide Wrestling, local wrestling promotion. We went to the wrestling for the first time. Uh, never been something like that before, let's just say it was interesting. Um, but anyway, this is Off The Fence, a podcast about politics. And we're going to be talking about lots on today's show. We've been away for quite a while, so there's a lot to talk about. But we're going to be covering all of it. Yeah. Everything that has happened in the world since the last episode. It's about two months worth. But I Strap feel, in, motherfuckers. I feel like if we had been here last week and, say, put a show out, there would Actually, still be loads to talk about anyway. There in, would be. In and seven... we tried, but just our timetables are terrible. Yeah. In the seven days that's just gone, there's been a lot to talk about. So we're going to be trying to cover that as much as possible. Um, obviously, this week mainly has been Trump coming to the UK. On his visit, obviously there was massive protests, like quarter of a million people. Yeah, in London, and obviously other protests around the UK when he landed, and in Scotland and elsewhere. There's been resignations from the, the cabinet, uh, Foreign Secretary Boris Johnson, uh, David Davis, the Brexit Secretary, and other people in his department resigning in protest of Theresa May's Chequers deal. So we'll be talking about that. We're also going to be talking about one Steve Bannon. Uh, the kind of de facto head of the alt-right. Don't tell Richard Spencer that. Um, Former Breitbart head, uh, general fascist agitator, believer in weirdo pseudoscientific conspiracy theories about the cyclical nature of the world. Yeah, so we'll be talking about him later on. He's been in the UK, done a number of interviews. Um, we're going to be talking about that. We've also got this story from you, Alex. Tell me all about it. It's about to do with Labour in the last general election. Yes, it turns out that Labour HQ was... You know, it's been revealed that they were actually sabotaging the kind of campaign that the leadership were trying to run, actively using targeted campaigning to basically fake a national campaign in the eyes of Corbyn and his related people. So, you know, this kind of open uh, revelation of genuine sabotage on the part of the former denizens of Labour HQ certainly brings up a lot of questions about, one, what happened during that... Uh, you know, that election, but also with regards to the position of the party going forward and the, you know, the, the shit-talking of a lot of people on the left of the party by the centrists. Okay, okay, okay. So we're going to be moving on to all that later on. Um, I'm excited to be able to talk about that. First, though, we're going to talk about Theresa May. This morning, on Sunday the 15th of July, she was on the Andrew Marr show, on the BBC Sunday morning show, um, and talking about the kind of Probably the worst week she's had since the general election. Talking about her checkers deal, here's Theresa May. She's on um, the BBC Andrew Marr show. And this comes after Donald Trump did a press conference there the other day, which was pretty bewildering. I don't know if you saw it, Alex. It's, he's, he's, he's very obviously just a sundowning old man. Yeah. It's... And he's been talking to Theresa May saying, you know, Theresa, this uh, Brexit negotiation, here's what I would have done if I was doing it. So he gave her some advice. And he said Theresa May rejected it. Uh, uh, she's gone the other way, you know. Uh, well, he's just letting himself down because, yeah. you know, this is President Deals. This is the <laughs> best deal maker in all of humankind. Mr. Deals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, he comes up with incredible de deals, like hire someone to do something, don't pay them, and then assume that they can't afford to sue you. It's, he's, he's brilliant. He, the, deals are his art. At that press conference on Friday, he mentioned that. But on this Andrew Marr show earlier today, Theresa May, she revealed what everyone wanted to know. What did Donald Trump advise her to do? Did he say, walk away? Did he say, you've got to go harder? Did he say, demand this, demand that? Well, let's find out. 
Okay, the whole country wants to know, Prime Minister, what was that brutal, tough suggestion? He told me I should sue the EU. Sue the EU? Sue the EU. Not go into negotiations, sue them. Actually, no, no. Did we're you, going did you into, think about that we're for going a to, second? We're going into negotiations with them. But interestingly, what the President also said at that press conference was don't walk away. Yeah. Don't walk away from the negotiations because then, you'll be then you're stuck. So I want us right. to be able to sit down to negotiate the best deal for Britain. So, sue the EU. Literally, we did have just a brief moment there of the President of the UK literally laughing at the idiotic advice that the President of the United States gave her. I, when I watched that press conference on Friday, there was that moment where you think, this guy, this bumbling buffoon, this idiot, is making Theresa May look competent, he's making Theresa May look like I mean, she knows what she's doing. You let's know, not go wild, but... I'm, I'm saying she, she obviously isn't those things. Relatively. It's, just, it's, the relative, it's the relative comparison. And it's just insane that I'm, I'm looking at Theresa May and going, oh, okay, well, yeah, I mean, all, in comparison... Also, it says a lot about her position that she can afford to literally laugh at him yeah. on air. She's literally laughing and smiling and saying, he told me to sue the EU. Can you believe that? I <laughs> guarantee that like, that's going to be a rallying point for the like, British far right from here on out. Just yeah. sue the EU. Just... <laughs> it's just that kind of mindset that we're not trying to both work for something in this negotiation, right? No, it's, no, no. it's a completely combative... It's, it's Trump 101. Like it's completely unsurprising when you think about it. Really. Yeah. Go use your use your resources to just go on the offensive and you know fundamentally don't even pretend to be engaging in a show of goodwill. We also we should mention Trump CBS. He spoke to. Is that right? Yes. What did he say? Uh, he declared the EU to be a foe of the US. In that they are just competitors within the global economy in that sense they are foes and so it's his zero-sum game viewpoint right there's yes. no there's only ever one winner yes so it, they it, have to be a foe not just there can only be one winner it's a war of all against all he has a very hobbesian view of things and it's it speaks it sheds a lot of light on why he would be so enthusiastic about the uk doing as much as it can to damage the eu on its way out he views it as basically a potential competitor taking out the another competitor. You know, it's it says a lot about the fact that he doesn't view this as being a matter of partnerships, which is ostensibly what the idea of a cooperative international order is all about. He's fundamentally positioning himself as someone who doesn't believe in that, which is a really weird and potentially alarming thing to have arise out of this. Okay, let's move on. Let's move on to... Steve Bannon. Hell yes, my greasy boy. <laughs> a very good friend of Donald Trump's in terms of... Former campaign manager. Yeah, former campaign manager, former sh- chief strategist. Noted wearer of multiple shirts at the same time. Yeah. And obviously they fell out a little bit on that that Michael Wolff book when it was published. There was a quote in that basically saying, you know, Trump's been messing around. Like, you know. Yeah. Well, so- Bannon is a big backer of the idea of this kind of like far-right socially, but economically... He, call, uh, he calls it economic nationalism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A, a sort of... A sort of... You're know, almost socialistic approach, but with a nationalistic vibe to it. A sort of I national he did, he socialism, did use, if you will. Yeah. <laughs> so he was speaking to the Daily Telegraph, an interview... Because uh, they love their fascists. They do. Uh, form, increasingly so. <laughs> and he's basically said, Boris Johnson, now is your time to strike, to become Prime Minister. And he's he's obviously resigned... From the cabinet this week. Yeah, he also has no friends in the party. Yeah. No, bo- no conservatives internally like him. He's got his resignation speech on Wednesday, so I guess look out for that. That could be the point where he goes 
kind of on the attack more. It could but like be. you say, he's he's very unpopular within the party. He's marginalised himself intensely. It's not within the members, but with the actual MPs, and that's what counts in terms yes. of becoming a leader. I mean, also to an extent within the membership, a little it's bit within the kind of I guess populist right. I guess you might call it. He's quite popular because he was very funny on Have I Got News for You, and he has that silly hair, and he seems like a laugh. Yeah, which is mostly what they care about. But in terms of becoming leader, yes, you know, you have to get the support from the MPs to get through to that final two head-to-head vote of the membership of the Conservative Party. Yes, and he's not going to get that, which I think speaks to the lack of insight or any insider information uh, that Steve Bannon and, to an extent, Trump are actually working from, because they both had good things to say about Boris Johnson. So so anyway, he he, in this interview with The Telegraph, um, he basically said, now is the time for Boris Johnson to challenge British Prime Minister Theresa May uh, for her job. He also added, quote, Now is the moment. If Boris Johnson looks at this, there comes an an inflection point. The Chequers deal was an inflection point. We will have to see what happens. So that's the way he sees it. And also, just to add to that, um, in terms of Boris Johnson, on Friday, The Telegraph said Johnson had rejoined the newspaper as a columnist. Which is exactly the thing you do when you're running for leadership. Yeah. This is off the back from that Sun interview, the exclusive they did last week as well we had um, Trump saying Boris would be a great Prime Minister that's what Trump said um, and that caused a bit of uproar people thought that was a slap in the face to Theresa May I mean it pretty incontrovertibly is that was yeah. part of an entire interview full of slaps to uh, slaps to Theresa May and that kind of put a lot of tension on their meeting and it, when he was actually confronted over that of course he declared it to be fake news so that's what Steve Bannon's saying Boris should jump in we, we've actually got uh, an interview with LBC today. He was on Nigel Farage's show, uh, probably a good friend of Steve Bannon's. And um, they were talking about Boris Johnson in that there. Basically, he's basically saying the same thing in that as well. Basically. But interestingly, later on, we hear about this idea of Steve Bannon and his kind of whole military mindset of this great war that we're in against, against Islam or the West or against Islam or well, West well, against immigrants. It's never quite clear. but It's a fascist. He's a exactly, fascist, so it's yeah. all of it. It's they all they of are it. in a state of war against the undermining influences within and without, and only through war can like, the pure of heart regain control. Mm-hmm. And you know, there's almost there's a real Evola-influenced uh, like, position of war actually being like a good character-building thing that you should kind of undertake for its own sake as well, which is... Again, very in line with his fascist leanings. And, and so he takes a lot of this from this book, I believe it's called The Fourth Turning, yeah. where he sees this kind of, I guess it's generational, um, but maybe longer than that, 80 years, 60 years, whatever it is. Every every 80 years, there's like a big moment of destruction where institutions are destroyed and something's built up from the ground, kind of like a forest fire burning down to re- re-energize the environment there or floods with rivers, things like that. Um, and he's basically, you know, s- saying that happens every 80s. There's a big turning point, whether it be World War Two or, say, the Napoleonic Wars in Europe or whatever. There's a big point and then it's that moment you have to seize it and take the reins and you'll be able to take the, the country in that direction or the yeah. continent in that direction. Yeah, and it, it's, it's fucking woo bullshit. It's nonsense. Like, if you look at, like, what happened... Supposedly, we're at the point now where it all needs to come crumbling down and be remade in new, uh, like a new... 
But to the far right who kind of crave that kind of cleansing fire in which they can tear everything down and create the glorious true nation that they imagine, it's always that time. And certainly if we're looking at like, you know, institutions crumbling and there being a new age after it, like how long ago did the USSR fall? That seems like a much more notable yeah. massive global institution falling than anything that we're facing today. Well, for, but for, for me, I feel like I kind of half see what he's saying, but I completely disagree with the other half. In that, I feel like where we are now is some sort of turning point, and and there are generational politics that you know every forty years, every kind of. De- uh, generation and a half there is a turning point for example Thatcher the end of the se- late 70s uh, Thatcher and Reagan coming up and the kind of new economic s- consensus replacing the the social democratic consensus of the post-war generations and I feel like th- I mean those are kind of distinct periods that go through different sort of changes and you can you can trace this back and we've done that on this show before but to say that there's this moment of massive destruction and it's it's very violent, and to use kind of warlike terminology. No, because and, they and want to, it to be violent. Yeah, it's... and to reference World War Two as the last time that ever happened, and, and not to talk about you know what happened in the seventies and move towards neoliberalism and away from um, the post-war consensus. And I feel like that's the kind of turning point. And um, only describing moments of war and great big dis- destruction as the turning points. I feel like that is the kind of fascist end of things. Yeah, that that's he's because that's from. what gets fascists hard. Exactly. It's... And it's it's also, like I say, it's bullshit. You can look to see, like, institutions crumbling at basically any point in history. Like, in any given decade, there are changes which you can use for this kind of rhetoric. It's fundamentally just about sating this kind of far-right thing of things have gone far enough, it all needs to come crashing down. It's worth mentioning, this book isn't taken seriously by many significant thinkers, by anyone in academia or by anyone in real positions of power. It's mostly just fascist weirdos who are waiting for the the racial holy war to finally start. So let's jump back into this LBC interview with Steve Bannon because he's going to start talking about this. And I've got some, I've got a clip to play in a minute, but it's quite long. So I'm going to mention the first part of it here. He says, you're going to have to fight to take your country back every day, whether it's Italy, France, England or the United States. If we quit, they're going to be in control. Now, Theo Usherwood, who's LBC's political editor, jumped in and said, that sounds like a call to arms. And Mr. Bannon responded with, absolutely. Yeah, well, that's the thing. They're trying to spur action. They're trying to spur... It's almost sort of revolution, except that they aren't trying... It's about restarting. It's it's not about... And at that point, Nigel Farage comes in and says, Steve Bannon, do you see everything in this kind of big military-style narrative? Is that what you see? And he says, basically, yeah, you know, I've got a background in that. This is this big war that's happening at the moment. I think he says that quote, war is politics by other means. And he says, politics is just war by other means. So if he could wage the war he wanted to, he would, but he can't. So he's got to do it politically. And it's this point we'll we'll jump back into the clip. They can come at me, but my point is they're playing hardball. The problem is the conservatives and people in the United States and England have been too nice. It's time to stop. And that's what I love about Trump. Trump is in your grill from the beginning. and He's not going to back off. And that's why you can't. If you're going to back off, they're going to win. If you've got the same grit. Okay, you got the same grit we saw in the trenches in the Western Front. You got the same grit that was at Normandy in one World War II. If you got the same grit that was in North Africa, if you got the same grit well, that was in the Pacific, you were going to win this thing. They, they cannot beat you. If you give up, 
they will beat us. That's not incitement to war. It's incitement to civil war. You're talking about the break. You're talking about Middle England and a divide between uh, those who protest. Look, 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 look at listen. Look at the thing in Trafalgar Square, and I say that's positive. I don't say those people shouldn't do it. It's positive. Because but, it feeds, but we're it not. But argument. I say this in the United States. Somebody says we're so divisive. I said I'm not divisive. The division's there. There's certain times in history you just can't hug it out. These countries are going to go in one direction or the other. If you look at the great inflection points in American and British history. Okay, the countries go in certain direction. We're at that inflection point. I happen to call it a fourth turning. Is this theory about generational politics? I think we're in a the fourth turning. Is. It's yes, it's going to go one way or the other. We are. If you look at in Trafalgar Square the other day, and those people had full rights to do it and full rights to put those signs up, and they had even a full right to put the baby balloon up, which I didn't agree with, but they had the rights to do it. However, you're not going to hug it out, and I don't want to hug it out. I want our side to win, and we can win if we're just as dedicated and tough and relentless well. as they are. So there you have it. That's Steve Bannon saying uh, we're going to win because we're just as tough and relentless as, as they are. Well, what does he mean about being tough? He's he's specific, like you know the tr the two hundred and fifty thousand people who went to Trafalgar Square. As far as I'm aware, no one came away injured in that. But people actually about twelve people had to be arrested for violence at the Tommy Robinson yeah. thing. The toughness, the asymmetry of violence, the application of violence by the right as an oppressive thing is already starting and, the, and it fundamentally this needs to be understood through the lens of that call to violence you can call about toughness you can talk about that as much as you want toughness and being ready to f as soon as you start saying fight and you start using these war analogies you know that and then you say toughness then that's in a different context and you start talking about violence more yeah. even if you don't use those words also he knows who he's talking to he knows what the kind of people he speaks to crave this is Violence and the idea of violent retribution and violent humiliation and the undoing of the sense of domination that these people have felt throughout their entire lives of being dominated by this people. This is why he says that conservatives have been too nice. I don't know where he gets off thinking that that has ever been the case. Certainly it's like he doesn't remember, say, anything that happened for the last 20 years in certainly in America but also arguably in this country yeah they've played exceptionally dirty at a number of different points to a number of different extents there's another point in there that I just want to mention he said I'm not divisive the division is already there I think that that is true but the question of where you draw the division then exactly. is the question his would be true patriots versus yeah, he's saying I'm not divisive elites. the division's already there but yeah you're exacerbating it dude like you're taking advantage of it and using it all as far as the distance as you can go with it I mean it's also like I say he's, he's pointing to a fake mollifying he's, he's pointing to a division that doesn't actually draw anyone against those who are actually in power this is a like this is a division that like an effete liberal minority who get there through subversion and through gaming the system get in. This is the fundamental fascist view. It's the kind of thing Umberto Eco talks about in his uh, uh, fascism, where he says that you can win it unless you let unless you give up. Basically, the they are in a position of tremendous power, but also they can definitely be taken down. That kind of contradictory dual like dual power levels of the enemy is a quintessentially fascist thing, as opposed to, I guess, the socialist equivalent, which is where you admit that the rich and the entrenched have the power. You have to have numbers, and that's a, like, it's it's very much not an easy thing, but that kind of, that I do think that there is genuine truth to the idea that divisions exist within our society that can't be papered over and do reach points of tension, but yeah. I think that ultimately, 
you know, what he's talking about is nonsense. It's people not liking that there are brown people around. It isn't, the, it isn't, you know, solid material economic things. It isn't whether or not you can feed your family. It isn't whether or not you can have a house over your head that doesn't feel threatening to you. It, it isn't about you finding fulfillment in the things you have to do with your day. It's just about offense at, like, racial changes. It's... It's nonsense, and it can't actually redress the tensions that he is saying is there correctly, I think. And this is this is one of those things where it's like the kind of liberal capital L idea is that we can all join within a hierarchy of people finding their place, and it's that's kind of that monopolizes the core of our political discourse so much that we kind of forget that it's really the only ideology that holds to that. And certainly, I, I think that the idea of divisions between groups who have a certain amount of mutually exclusive interest is... You know, I think that that's a legitimate thing, but I think that what that division is is something that can be, you know, revealed adequately in a thing that's actually based in reality. Or it can be framed as being about driving out the blacks and the Jews and the liberal elites, which fundamentally is what he's getting at. In that interview, um, we did did just hear from Theo Ashwood there, um, you know, basically challenging him a little bit. And it would have been, I mean, very unfortunate if he hadn't been in the room, um, because it seemed it seemed as though this was Steve Steve Bannon with basically his mate, another one of those interviews um, on Nigel Farage's show on LBC that have been done recently, where. Um, doesn't feel unchallenged. So we've got Theo Ushered in the room, at least to give a bit of pushback and to ask some questions that are going to make Steve Bannon a little bit uncomfortable in his chair and actually actually get some answers that people want to find out. And in this interview, we go on to another clip now, talking about Tommy Robinson, Stephen Yaxley Lennon, his real fucking name. Um, and obviously he's been jailed for contempt of court for 13 months. Um, he broke the law, he pled guilty to it. And he, not only did he do that, he was warned by a judge that if you do this again, you're going to be jailed. You've gotten off lightly this first time that you've done it. We're giving you a suspended sentence. So that means if you go out and do it again, you're going to be jailed. What did he do? He went out and did it again. Subsequently, he was jailed. So that's that. And, and we've got, we're talking about that on here. Uh, let's play the clip. Let's see what Steve Bannon has to say about Tommy Robinson. Quick question from Theo. Just quickly on Tommy Robinson. He said he wasn't, you said he wasn't Islamophobic. Every single w Muslim watching this, on 7-7, you got away with killing and maiming British citizens. No, 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 no. Actually, I don't, no, no, to be fair, you said you disagreed with Tommy yeah. Robinson on yeah, Islam. Yeah. But, yeah. You, but, but before the break, no. before the break, you said he wasn't, before the break, you said he wasn't Islamophobic. Well, I don't, I, I said, I don't know if Islam he... Islam is not a religion of peace. Islam is fascist and it's violent and we've had enough. They're I don't, I don't know, I don't know if I, you know, Islamic phobia about shipping guys out and stuff like that. I don't know if Tommy's like that. I mean, but he and I disagree about the religion of Islam, okay? But I don't think Tommy's a bad guy. I think he's a solid guy and I think he's got to be released from prison. But he broke the law. When you, 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 you break the law, you break. First of all, it's a highly technical. It was a highly technical. It was a highly. You talked about citizens at the southern border and adhering to the law. Tommy Robinson, by what he filmed outside that courtroom, he broke the law. Well, according, the according, according to the interpretation of that judge, a lot of people will say that that law is way too restrictive. What about that's what? By the way, just free speech is just free speech. It's interpretation of what they said. We're going to move on. We got one. By the way, you a news guy? Are you? Are you? Are you? Are you? 
subscription to even hand news guy. Are you? Are you? No. Are you? Are you a news guy? Are you? No. You on something. You're saying well, on something we, more than that. You get, brother, brother, you got to go. And, hold it. Stop. Theo, stop. You got to go Theo, a lot better. You got to go Theo, a lot. I take the view as well that Tommy Robinson broke the law. I've always taken that view. So that was Steve Bannon there, being in inverted commas called out by Theo Ashwood, um, on a kind of double standard on you know being uh, about law and order, right? Well, if, if you're no, for... he isn't about law and order. He's about race war. Well, there you go. But, but you know, Donald Trump's the law and order candidate, things like that. But again, that is code word for race war. It's exactly. been code word for race war ever since, you know, no, the 1960s. But the, but the point is, you've got, to, you've got to point that out to them. You've got to, you've got to point out that, that, that code word. You've got to point out that kind of dog whistle. Um, so, you know, when, he, when he's saying, you know, I'm for, you know, f- I'm for the law... And for you know undocumented immigrants being treated with you know we should we should uphold the law in that respect. But then we shouldn't upload we shouldn't uphold the law in terms of contempt of court over here. We should ignore and that. And also notably, well, yes, he broke the law according to the interpretation of a judge, which is how the judiciary yes. system works. Exactly. He's functionally arguing against the idea of a judiciary, and also that's in line with his disregard for the fact that Tommy Robinson was potentially sabotaging a fair trial that could result in the imprisonment of paedophiles. He could have He could have made it so that that court case would have been thrown out. But to these people, it doesn't matter because it isn't about law or fair treatment to these people because as far as these people are concerned, they don't deserve fair treatment. And it's about a conspiracy to protect the Muslims or something like that. Because it's about race war and it's about the cultural Marxists that want to bring in all these brown people to destroy whiteness. That's I, I, fundamentally what these people believe. If you let, like, if they'd let him talk and not challenge him, he would have started on how this was all the Jews' fault within five minutes. I just want to bring in what happened after that interview now. Theo Ashwood actually tweeted this. Bannon to me, off air. Fuck you, don't you fucking say you're calling me out. You fucking liberal elite. Tommy Robinson is the backbone of this country. What fucking knowledge of this country does he have that he would come to that conclusion? Jesus Again, Christ. it's entirely about viewing it versus through this clash of civilizations. Well, well, hang on, hang on, hang on. We'll come to the Tommy Robinson thing in a minute and about, and about Steve Bannon's knowledge of this country. Let's just go on the aggression first. Fuck you, don't you fucking say you're calling me out. So, Theo Usher would answer, asked a good question there, a relevant question. And, you know, a question that was needed to be said in that environment. Otherwise, you're just going to have Nigel Farage and his mate talking about how we need to, you know, control immigration and we need to start, you know, a, a big inflect. We need to take advantage of this big inflection point and take control of the country and the continent. So, oh, Mr. Bannon believes in more than just restricting immigration. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, I mean, in that interview, he also said, oh, I don't know if Tommy Robinson's like an Islamophobe in terms of, you know, uh, kicking all the uh, all the, Isla- the all the mu- all the Muslims out, shipping them out. He said, "Yeah, yeah the that's, fact that's, that's even on his mind—that's the line for yeah, him. The fact that that's even on his mind as a talking point, you know, I feel like that is indicative of what he's really like. The fact that he's even got that as an option in his head of what what the, what you know, you know, I think that's really well, like I say that he views that as where the divide is. Yeah, like presumably he's done some thinking about whether or not he's an Islamophobe, and that's where he draws the line. So." Yeah. We've got that there. Um, he's being aggressive. He's saying, you know, why are you asking me those questions? Um, and he goes, are you a news guy or or what? Yeah, what yeah. A new, you know, a political editor that should be holding to your account. He then, I he, mean, what do we think he meant by are you a news guy? Because it sounded like <laughs> he was trying to position a thing, but he then called him a liberal elite and yeah. a, a news guy. And so then on the statement, Tommy Robinson is the backbone of this country. Is is Tommy Robinson really the backbone of this country? A criminal has been convicted of multiple crimes 
uh, and has been warned not to do them again, and then has gone and done them again, and subsequently been jailed. He is, if you believe, that we are in a state of civilizational war against the Muslims, and that immigration is a form of war. Like that, if you believe those things, and that's what Tommy Robinson basically believes, and that's what Steve Bannon, yeah, a man who, a man whose supporters consistently engage in violence against those people who they disagree with. I mean, like, one about the other, twelve of them got arrested for it just this morning. One the other day approached an Al, Al Jazeera journalist, calling her a slag, saying you're on the side of Muslims, you're backed by Muslims. You know, it's this kind of like. Do you really think? These people are the backbone of the country. Get out of here. This is ridiculous. Um, so we've got that clip there. Then we had Raheem Kassam, Steve Bannon and, and Nigel Farage's pet boy, page boy, whatever you want to call him, wetting his pants on Twitter that Theo Washwood had the gall to tweet this. How dare a journalist challenge someone on something? It's not as if someone saying Tommy Robinson is the backbone of this country, a statement like that from someone like Steve Bannon... Seems uncontroversial yeah, to me. Publishing that is not in the public interest whatsoever, so we shouldn't tweet it. You know, that was it was off the record or whatever... Um, was it? Raheem Kassam is saying it, it was off the record after the interview outside the studio or whatever. And Theo Ashwood's disputed that, saying, no, you've never said anything like that's off the record. And he, and regardless of that, that's clearly in the public interest. Saying a guy, a guy like that saying that Tommy Robinson is the core of this country. Yeah, it speaks to how far right he is. And we, like, we need to drive home that these people are functionally speaking fascists. Yeah. And then you have Raheem Kassam, you know, threatening other people at LBC and stuff like that, saying... He's going to get people fired, but whatever. Um, he's a crybaby, and Raheem Kassam is just always hilarious to watch on on Twitter, wetting his pants. Um, I mean, more on this Tommy Robinson thing as well, and the links with Trump. Did you see a story about a uh, US ambassador? Uh, which ambassador was this? Let's talk about it. Sam Brownback. Ah, uh, yes, and this Sam is from, Brownback. This is from Reuters. The US ambassador for international religious freedom, no less, Sam Brownback, complained to the British ambassador in Washington, D.C. about the treatment of an English right-wing activist who is in jail. Don't call them far-right, you know, because they, they they massively, massively uh, get worked up about you calling them far-right. They say, they say things like, oh, you just use far-right for something you don't agree with. Anything's far-right in 2018 if you don't agree with it. No, it, it's it's far-right if it's if it's far-right. You know? yeah. that, that's how words work and it's nouns work. Like if you're like if you're aligned with people like Tommy Robinson and Steve Bannon, you are far right. Yeah. So he's an English far right wing activist who is in jail for disrupting a trial, according to uh, three sources familiar with the discussion. That's the discussion between the ambassador for international religious freedom on Trump's end. Now, do you know who Sam Brownback is? I don't know his history. All I know is this title that we've got down there from Reuters. Yeah, no, Sam Brownback was the former governor of Kansas and left it as basically a smoking ruin in his wake. He kind of, he put in place a very, very hard kind of like right-wing austerity politics that completely destroyed the country. It, the quality of life there dipped by a million different metrics. And, you know, then he swanned out and became, uh, apparently, the ambassador for international religious freedom. God knows what that means in this context, especially since he's now talking up, rather than religious freedom, a guy who is trying to disrupt the fair trial of Muslims. So, as far as in like religious freedom goes, he apparently believes that like the trial of Muslims in a non-Muslim country should go un- yeah. like 
shouldn't go uninterrupted. Well, it's kind of like the Trump administration. They put people in charge of jobs that are opposed to the actual job. For example, yeah. case in point, Scott Pruitt. Yeah, well, if, if you want to destroy the functions of those institutions, who else would you put in charge? Someone who actually cares about yeah. doing the job? And we see it over here, right? Priti Patel. She was formerly, last year, International Development. A department that she's previously spoken out saying she should it shouldn't exist anymore. Of course. And then she gets put in charge of it. Mm, looks of bit, course, looks because the idea though. is to sabotage these departments. Exactly. So, um, last bit on this I want to go on to. As it turns out, these rallies um, that have been going on in support of Tommy, free Tommy Robinson, you know, the convicted criminal, um, they're actually being funded by an American right-wing think tank. Who would have guessed? And we've heard about the violence at these rallies. We've heard about what they're all about, the people that have been speaking at them. Also, how relatively small they are. Two to three thousand people as opposed to a yeah. quarter of a million people who opposed Trump the previous day. And we've got this story from The Eye, you know, the free version of The Independent, the one you can get on inews.co.uk. We've got, while the groups organising the rallies have previously claimed to be self-funded or from donations, a hard-line US conservative think tank Middle East Forum Oh Jesus Christ have, se- have said they have actually been funding the demonstrations In a post on its website last week the group group took responsibility for financing both the Free Tommy Robinson rally on June 9th and the rally on the 14th of July The earlier event turned violent and saw attendees attacking the police hurling barriers and other projectiles um, I remember there was horses inside a, a, a police horse box carriage, you know, the, the vehicles that carry horses. And there was a guy throwing a, a traffic cone inside one of them at a horse, you know, and they're chasing police down the streets. Um, and it turns out they're actually being funded by this uh, right-wing think tank. We, we mentioned Raheem Kassam earlier on. Uh, he, I mean, I think he's he's involved with the Middle East Forum. You've got people like him. He was being He's speaking at these events along with Jared Batten, the leader of UKIP. Um, that's all going on. So, I think we're going to see more of these happening. Well, yeah. And I think it's going to get worse. Do you know who the Middle East Forum are? Tell me a little bit more about this group that are funding these rallies in London. So, the Middle East Forum are a group that have been working in American universities to do things like identify professors who talk about Palestinian rights or about uh, the Middle East in a way that is anything other than non-prosecutorial, like anything other than prosecutorial. Yeah and basically making a big list of them under the name Campus Watch. And, uh, you know, they uh, started off publishing a list of all of these problematic instructors and lecturers um, in a way that is, like, has been described as McCarthy-esque. The nation has uh, declared it as being anti-Arab propagandism, and that it's essentially an attempt to smear academics critical of the Israeli occupation uh, or of American foreign policy in the region, which, like, yeah, that's what it is. It's, li- it's just an attempt to astroturf uh, you know, a policy that is more in favor of plundering the Middle East. That's entirely why it exists. It is a deeply reprehensible thing, and it's interesting that they are now getting into bed with something that doesn't involve that kind of thing. This isn't about Middle East policy, which is essentially their thing. It's about hostility to Muslims, which everyone has always said is actually their thing. And it's large, It's part of their larger project. It is, it is. And it's, it, well, not only is it a, a, a matter of their larger project, it speaks to an expansion of their larger project into fundamental host, hostility against Muslims and against people who live in the Middle East in general. 
we're going to draw on the line under all that then. I'm sure there's lots of topics in there we're going to come to discuss once again. I, I do feel like those rallies are going to continue to escalate. But at the same time, not grow in size, but become more desperate and more violent as things go on. Almost so. Because I feel yeah. like there's not going to be... There, there may be a few more people joining those rallies and, and culminate, but there's, there's a... There's a ceiling to that support, but the support itself will get more desperate and more violent. Um, that's the way I see things going that potentially we can look for further predictions down the line. Let's move on to what you've got, Alex, now. I'm really interested to hear what you've got to say. Yes. Uh, so it turns out, according to former Labour staffer Tom, Tom Baldwin, that during the 2017 campaign, uh, Labour HQ teams used targeted advertising to fake a voter registration campaign actively deceiving parliamentary leadership about the campaign that they were running. And in terms of Labour HQ, what is Labour HQ in terms of the party structure? For those that don't know. Labour HQ it are the people who do the day-to-day operations of the Labour Party machinery. So that's not actually Jeremy Corbyn, the leadership office. This yes, is the... it's not the parliamentary leaders. No. It's the people who do the administration, who are down at Southside. Yeah. It's it's the it's the bureaucrats of the party who have for a long time been entrenched Blairites and who caused a lot of issues that were kind of alluded to for a while. And, and this was under the general secretary, who's basically I assume kind of like the head yes, of the Labour. Yes, Mac- this is the former Labour, uh, former general secretary Ian McNichol, who was just recently ousted in favour of Jenny Formby. Yeah. So that this is last year's general election, um, June eighth. Uh, and the run-up to that, the campaign up to that. And what's the sort of things that were going on around that? Well, um, supposedly, according to a former official, uh, they spent 5,000... They were they were basically told to do a voter registration thing, try and get people out to vote. And Sounds it turn- like a good idea. Well, it turns out that a huge portion of the Labour vote that really kind of brought their vote share up, won them a number of seats, yeah. came from people who hadn't voted before. So this is potentially a very good... Or, or potentially people that haven't voted in a long time. Yes. People that have started to feel apathetic about the political system and the democracy that we have. Yeah. Outreach to them was a major reason for the uh, relative success that the Labour Party enjoyed in that election. Yeah. So they were told to do that. Okay. But if you live in a kind of managerial politics in the world where government is just a matter of electing like differently themed like you know management consultancies as kind of politics has been for a long time during you know partisan convergence and all that crap i learned when i was uh, studying politics that is completely irrelevant now that seems like an absurd thing to do so what they did instead was they spent five thousand pounds of their budget sending adverts about a uh, about registering to vote exclusively to left-wing activists and groups a very tiny group of committed labor supporters uh, inclu- uh, designed to be seen exclusively by, quote, Jeremy's people, some journalists and bloggers, pouring way more money into separate messaging that didn't come from the leadership. And so, fundamentally, what they're doing here is actively lying to the leadership of their party about the campaign that they're running. And doing so, like, going against an order that ended up working in in the in the places where it was implemented working out very well for the labor party and so it speaks to a couple of things first of all it speaks to how bad readers of the political equation these people are that they hobbled them on something that could have actually made a big difference and like i say where it was inf- implemented did make a big difference but also it speaks to the deceptiveness of the people within the institutions of the Labour Party at this time and their unwillingness to work with the leadership of the party. 
There were a lot of complaints that activists and people on the left of the party had with the management, particularly uh, activists going to getting shuffled into relatively safe seats rather than trying to go on the offensive. Uh, a lot of people who did ask questions about funding allocations. Uh, I personally know of a number of people who've done activist work uh, with the Labour Party who are owed money uh, by the Labour Party, but who the former people at Labour HQ basically refused to fund because they were allied to the left of the party. So this kind of, th or certainly those are the allegations that they've made. These are the kinds of things that were going on during the campaign last time around. And it speaks to, you know, it speaks frankly to the miraculousness of the results that they got that the, you know, the left of the Labour Party, the leadership of the Labour Party, the activist base of the Labour Party were running not just a external fight against the Tories, but an internal fight against the Conservatives within the Labour Party and the people who had power within the Labour Party and didn't want to let it go. And people were talking about this, about the, how Labour HQ were trying... People were making accusations. Um, and when I say people, I mean, you know, Corbynites, I mean... Significant figures. The membership, people feeling like Labour HQ wasn't getting behind the the drive to win the general election, or yeah. at least the drive to go in the direction that Jeremy Corbyn was trying to take the campaign, in terms of let's do this, this is how we should run it. Um, there wasn't, uh, they, if there was lots of accusation that they were trying to sabotage things. And they were all told, what were they told? They were told that they were conspiratorial, that they were being ridiculous. Yeah. Um, when in fact it turns out it was worse than they ever suspected. Exactly. It's not even just true, it's far worse than those people even, even realised. I've heard so much about how mean the, these leftists, these activists, these momentum thugs are to the good people who were already in the Labour Party, who liked it when it was Blair and liked it when it was centrist, how mean they were and how you know combative they were. Meanwhile, these people have been sabotaging the leadership of the Labour Party and probably costing them the election. It's, it's shocking the extent to which this has been, uh, like, perpetrated. And fortunately, most of these people are either gone or have their heads down now. But, you know, the, the possibilities that could have been ahead of us if they hadn't pulled this kind of nonsense, if they hadn't been actively conspiring against their own leadership, it's, it's shocking, frankly. And there, there are tweets, of, there's literally tweets of people like Richard Angel from that wing of the party, from Progress, saying... Um, you're not just wrong, you're being conspiratorial and crazy. This is ridiculous. Um, it turns out they were right. And what yeah. it reminds me of, it reminds me starkly of the Donna Brazil tell-all book that came out following, I mean, not too long ago, actually, um, talking about the Democratic um, primary for the nomination for the presidential candidate in 2016. So the first, the latter half of 2015 into 2016, and how the Clinton machine basically took over the DNC and largely rigged the whole process. Not rigged it as in changed votes and uh, crossed people's votes off and put... But used their positions within yeah. the mechanisms of the party to very, give themselves a massive Yeah, advantage. very much geared the whole, the whole charade to be kind of favouring Hillary Clinton a lot. And even despite that, um, Bernie Sanders still nearly took it away from her. 42% wasn't it? Yeah, and 42% of all the votes in the primary. And my analogy, the best analogy for that that I've ever heard is it's like Hillary Clinton started a basketball game 20 points in front and then finished up yeah. two points in front. Well, it was, it was even transparent things, like the superdelegates declaring themselves at the beginning so she already had this huge score run-up, even though 
Yeah. That's not official. That's not how it's supposed to work. And theoretically, if there are changes in the thing, if there are changes in the thing and it goes the other way, as it did in 2008 with Obama, the superdelegates are supposed to change. They're not so, They're not allowed to commit like this. And yeah. so... Well, what they're actually meant to be is... in there, what they were brought in those superdelegates for in the 80s, was to stop the membership from choosing uh, a candidate that would be strong in the primary but weak in a general election. And what did they do this time? They think they did that, but they did the opposite. Yeah. Well, again, this speaks to centrists just not being very good at reading the political yeah. equation. But. And there's the other kind of telltale signs of that are the fact that Hillary Clinton's actual team were encouraging on the Republican side to support candidates like Trump, like Ted Cruz, to try and win the race because they believed they would be weak in the general election. I mean, Cruz probably would have been, but Trump was them absolutely shooting well, yeah. themselves in the foot. But they were actually encouraging people like that um, on the Republican side to do well. Um, yeah, she probably would have fucking beaten Jeb. Yeah, well, I mean, anyway, they were encouraging candidates on that side they thought were weak that were in some points that would be stronger, for example, Trump being the obvious one. Um, the fact that, you know, they thought they were... Uh, superdelegates thought that Hillary Clinton was the strong candidate in, in the political centre, going to win over those centre-ground conservative Republicans. Yeah, um, which they didn't, because no. they vote with their class interests. Exactly. So... That all happened, and the way I bring that up and reminds me of this is because the membership at that time were saying, you know, the DNC, they have rigged the primary. This is obvious. The way they're scheduling the debates, the way they're entrenched in their view that the southern states have to vote in the primaries first, and then the more progressive states vote later in the primary, therefore having less of an impact because people feel like the whole process is already done and dusted. Um, you know, they were saying that's happening, and they too were dismissed as conspiratorial as being crazy, as being ridiculous. And it turns out when Donna Brazil published her book um, a year or so later, they were completely right. Just as the people with Labour HQ here were completely right about um, Labour HQ undermining the campaign. And there were stories from around the country, and there's lots of examples, but I mean, the one that I know the most in Sussex here was Brighton Kemptown was a marginal seat that people were pushing to flip um, and they did flip it, but they didn't just flip it. They flipped it into a eight, nine thousand majority, which is, is quite a lot. You know, you're, you're, you're shifting about ten thousand votes there. Um, whereas if and, and there was tons of people in Brighton, Kemp Town, tons of Labour activists working really hard to knock on doors to do that. Um, but if they'd known um, or they've gotten any help from Labour HQ or as, as, as Labour staffers have told me, Labour Regional were just nowhere to help them. They'd sent just a few people, you know, regularly to Hastings. They could have got a few more hundred votes and what? Unseated the Home Secretary. That would have been huge, right? It would have been. It would have turned a monumental general election in terms of its result and the kind of shock of the result there. It would have turned that into, you know, it would have been phenomenal in terms of how much the shock would have been in there. Yes, and it's worth mentioning that next time around this issue should be pretty resolved. Uh, talking to the independence Matha Busby, a uh, Labour staffer commented that uh, before the election it felt like our shadow team were essentially expected to manage everything on our own with barely any money or coordination of sa uh, from Southside. Now things are being run far more professionally. That's partly because the leader of the opposition office's expertise has gotten better, but also because Southside have realised they need to sort themselves out now that Ian McNichol's gone or risk getting the sack. 
So it seems like this is fortunately a thing of the past because un unlike with the DNC in America, uh, the li the Labour left has been able to consolidate its power and get you know its people into the general secretary position and into Labour HQ senior positions, which is encouraging and hopefully means a party that will be fully pulling uh, more in a single direction in the future. So we're going to leave that there. I'm going to quickly try and run through some of this polling news because I feel like it's always a good one to end on. There's lots of debates around how valuable it is in terms of this far out from a general election. People yeah. aren't really thinking about it. And sometimes the approval ratings are much more important. I mean, um, so far it's been very, very even for the most part. It has. Part. We've basically, we've pretty much had the polls not really move since last year. No. And both parties really hovering around 40% of the vote. But... But... that's all. Then last week happened. Yeah. But then th this point, I, I'm going to put my case as to why this has happened. We've had we've had the last week checkers deal. We've had resignations of um, Boris and uh, David Davis. We've had Trump coming over and rubbishing parts of Theresa May's um, strategy, and now we've got these po polls coming out now. From the pollster being opinion, they've done polling for a while now. The last one they did for the Observer was on the seventh of June, which is six weeks ago. So we're seeing the changes from six weeks ago. We've got Labour on forty percent, no change. We've got the Conservatives on thirty six percent which is obviously lower, four-point lead for Labour there. But it's more about the change that's happened than the actual figures. We've got the Conservatives on 36% at minus six. So they've gone down six points. And what else do we have? We've got UKIP at 8%, plus five. And that's significant. That, that really is a significant change. I always say plus one, minus two. Those sorts of changes aren't, they're within the margin of error. Yeah, that could just be changes in the samples yeah. of people. It could be that the last poll that. that you're comparing it to was slightly off by two, that, and this one's right, or vice versa. So, but when you've got changes of five and six, that's when you're really starting to see significant change. Yeah, this is indicative of a political shift. Yeah. So, and you're seeing people say, well, uh, I don't think the Conservatives are going to hard people that voted leave and are very much kind of looking for the hard brexit they're saying the the, the conservatives are letting me down so we're going to go back to ukip and try and force that yeah um, some of them might have previously voted ukip some of them might be the people that shifted from ukip 2015 voted ukip 2015 voted leave theresa may conservative 2017 and then this year they're thinking well, I'm not having what I voted for delivered, so I'm going to go back to UKIP. And what's interesting is that the Labour, the UKIP voters who went back to Labour aren't shifting. Exactly. That's, that's the interesting I wonder part. why that might be. Hmm. Yeah. It's almost like their material interests are being addressed by the economic policies of Jeremy Corbyn, per se. Almost. And the, the people who are just full of cultural grievance and rage at the brown people are all the ones shifting back and forth between Conservatives and UKIP. Yeah. So um, we've got that going on there. Um, obviously, UKIP, as the position that they were previously, is still a mess. You know, we've had seven, five, six leaders since Nigel Farage, right? Yeah, yeah. Bit of a, a mess of a party, but I feel like... That's irrelevant because the people that are voting UKIP are voting just because they want to leave the European Union. It yeah. doesn't matter about the party. It, is, it isn't reflective of the party. It's reflective of... The issue. The, yeah, the opinion of like British chauvinists, yeah. essentially. And obviously, this has an, an impact on the Conservatives. It might, it might, If we start seeing Conservative support, it's at 36% in this poll. If we start seeing it go down below 35, then that's when those letters are going to start flooding into the 1922 committee and you're going to start seeing... Um, Theresa May having to defend her, her position as Prime Minister. And, and she has said that she'll fight it if a leadership she challenge will. does come. So. She will. And obviously the irony here is that it puts Labour in front. You know, Labour support just has to stay where it is 
Yeah. Um, Obviously, it's not great to have far-right discontent galvanising. No. But... I mean, there's a strategy to, and a tactic to to get into government. Yeah. Um, I mean, and a lot of people... It's kind of interesting to hear what the uh, FBPE types would say about this, saying... Because this is kind of the thing that they said would never happen. Yeah. Um, I mean, they wouldn't. They they would... They, they're... They would view this entirely through the thing of, well, this is why we should have a Romain, uh, a Romain Labour. Yeah, yeah. If we have Labour Party come out for trash the referendum, it doesn't matter what people voted for in 2016. Um, it doesn't matter what platform we stood on in 2017. Let's just forget about the... Uh, let's just shove that under the rug. Let's just stay in the EU because, you know, we know better... Um, it's weird how no matter where the tea leaves are they always read the same thing (laughs) so we've got that you know certainly I feel like if Jeremy Corbyn came out saying second referendum or you know forget the other referendum we're going to stay in the EU um, I don't think his party would be stabilising on 40% of the vote and because you're seeing seeing I'll take it further than that I think if they make the like leaving or staying in the EU their their central thing their coalition doesn't hold because their coalition has other concerns and concerns that intersect with that issue but which aren't dominated by it and which aren't best served by allowing that to dominate their platform and a lot of those people say well you know the party uh, 75% of Labour voters are remain yep um but then again, 25% will leave. Yeah. So shouldn't we be representing them as well? I feel like what Labour are trying to do is represent the 52 and the 48 and try and come to some consensus in the middle ground. Now, now those people would I say... Mean, let's be honest about what Labour are doing. Labour are trying to establish such a close partnership of the EU that in 10 years, when half of these levers are dead, we can go right back in. Basically. Potentially, potentially. But my point here is that, you know, some of these FBPE types, some of these... Some of them might have previously been, you know, people that voted for Corbyn or whatever, but a fair few of them aren't. I think that's a stretch. Like, let's be honest about where (laughs) these people are right now. These people who've been trying to convince themselves for the last two weeks, uh, for the the last two, two months, really, that... Theresa May, who specifically, like, want... Like, who is specifically preparing Brexit is less pro-Brexit than Jeremy Corbyn. Yeah. <laughs> because basically, these these people fundamentally are closer to the Conservative position than the left Labour position. And, and so they're just greasing the... They're clearing the runway for voting Conservative. But hang on a minute. These are the people that were saying we, we need to appeal to the wider electorate. We mustn't talk to ourselves. We must be out there trying to find out what people in, in the Midlands think. You know, pe- people who have other views that aren't lefties think. Hang it's, on a minute. It's almost like centrists are really bad at reading the political <laughs> equation. Or just having an argument, having an argument that holds up. Uh, anyway, um, we've got that poll there. UKIP massively coming back there. Like Nigel Farage saying he might try and run for the leadership again in March. Wouldn't surprise me if that goes through. And we see a, you know them pushing up into the uh, the low, tw- low teens, 10, 12%, maybe to up to 15%. The reason why it's happening now, you might have said, why people were saying this was never going to happen. I think it was always going to happen. But the reason why it's happening now this week, why is it only happening now? That's because this is the first week where those people who are shifting back to UKIP can actually tangibly realise, as much as they've had to be shaken into their senses, that they're actually being let down now, finally. right? We've had a year of the kind of hard-right Tory MPs saying, 
Oh no, Theresa, you know, Jacob rees No, Theresa May's going to deliver. I think she should be as Prime Minister for as long as she wishes to be. Um, she's delivering Brexit. We've all got to get it behind her. Of course. And, and at the same time, you've got Theresa May. It's been, you know, since we've had the backstop in December, the deal reached with the EU saying that if a deal isn't reached, that the uh, Northern Ireland would stay in the customs um, union and everything like that, the single market. I just feel like over the past year, we've had Theresa May saying one thing to the hard right of the Tory party and another thing to the other part of her party who wants I, to remain in the EU. I mean, it's not and, even like she's been saying it. These people have just never been confronted with what the yeah. Brexit they would get would actually be. It's always been the like the status quo as it, as it was before the vote or the Brexit that exists in your head. Exactly. And, and it's taken them a year to finally realise that Theresa May and the party... Well, in general, they're not going to deliver the fantasy that they that that no one that in their want. right mind would. Yeah, exactly. So, it's it's kind of like we've had it's had to come to the point of the checkers deal finally being put out there, even though it's taken a year to, for them to finally decide. Because if it was if it was announced like uh, six months ago, this would have happened then, and then we would have had the resignations, and then we would have had you know Jacob Rees more getting more fiery, and it would have happened months ago. But because Theresa May's had to just kick the can down the road, and they've had to. Keep it going, keep it going. Let's we gotta we can't risk anything. And now it's finally happening. Now we're seeing this shift that was always gonna happen. That little sort of five percent at the moment that feel disappointed. Yeah. Um I wonder if this includes the FBPE people who've <laughs> been like moving over to the Conservatives as the real party of Remain. Yeah. Well this is this is the pointless thing about I see the polling um questions about um how how much faith do you have in Theresa May's leadership or handling the Brexit decision? And it's like seventy nine percent are disappointed. Yeah, but it's like in that 79%, like half of them are disappointed for completely different reasons than the other half, right? Yeah. You know, it's completely... I find questions like that can be a bit difficult. Anyway, we've got that poll from Opinion there, The Observer. Um, Conservatives losing massive support and it's shifting to the UKIP and Labour s- staying steady and managed to take the lead. And it's been interesting to see if that kind of shift, because this is the first time we've seen that shift in a poll, are we going to see that shift in other polls as well? And it turns out there is another poll. For The Sun, it is a Delta poll. UKIP moving up to 6%, which is significantly more than the 3 2 maybe 4% tops that we've seen. And we've got Labour on, again, steady 42%, moving up 1%, but that's basically no change, really. Conservatives minus 4 to 37%. Um, again, changes with early June. So we're seeing that shift. Conservatives falling away slightly. UKIP's bumping up a little bit. Um, it could be as little as 3%. It could be as big as 5 6%. And again, Labour losing very few of their Brexit yeah. voters. And as for all the people out there who say uh, the polls always get it wrong, I don't know how many times we said it on this show, that's not the case. I mean, no, no, no. The polls get it wrong when they disagree with what I want to happen. Yeah. They get it right when they agree with me. And also, when the polls say it's really close, but it might just go one way... And then it actually, in reality, just goes the other way. Oh, the polls are wrong. You can never trust the polls ever at all. For example, case in point, Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump, US election. But the polls were saying it would be Hillary Clinton shortly, right? No, no. Uh, on the day no, of the no. election, and there was like, a 2%. No, the pundits were saying yeah, it would go for The Hillary pundits Clinton. weren't able to interpret the polling in the kind of degree of nuance that was required. The national polling for Hillary on the day of the election was that Hillary Clinton had a 2% lead in the national picture. What happened? Well, she won the popular vote by about 2%. Yeah. It's the statewide polling was so close in 
uh, states like Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, that Donald Trump narrowly, narrowly managed to push in front yeah, on those states. It was within the margin of error. It was very close, yeah. So um, whenever you've got polls within the, within the margin of error, take it that any side could move up or down one or two percent. But more importantly, when multiple polls show movement in the same kind of direction, especially significant movement yes. as these ones do, that's also probably indicative of something real going on. Yeah, especially when it, it lines up with what's actually going on in the reality of that week's events. Anyway, we're going to leave it there. Thanks for listening. If you've listened to us for the first time, we're a podcast called Off The Fence. You've probably seen us maybe on soundcloud.com slash off the fence. But check us out on Twitter as though. We're a little bit more active on there. At Off The Fence Talk is where we are. We're both on Twitter as well. You can find our handles on there. Um, but thanks for listening. I've been James Fox. I've been Alex Maskell. Cheers. Cheers.